Hey, this is Kelly Whiffen. Thanks for joining us today for the Encounter Church podcast. We all want to live lives of better decisions and fewer regrets. No matter where you are in your spiritual journey, we believe the next 30 minutes can be one of the most helpful and hopeful parts of your week. At the end of the podcast, stay tuned for a couple messages. Thanks again for joining us today. Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. Let me try that again because this is, I'm excited, so I'm going to need a little bit more excitement from you. Good morning. I mean, we are like on the threshold of like, if you have kids in the house of summer and all that comes summer, we got some teachers in the house. I know that you're excited because you're like just a few days away from freedom. So I expect a little bit like we ain't waving no white flag this morning. We're alive because it's about to happen. And so um, we want to kind of take this day. Um, if you're new to Encounter Church, let me give you a disclaimer about today. This is going to be a little different day. Um, and uh, today, I'm going to kind of speak to you a little bit, knowing the transition, getting ready to go in the summer. We have a three different summer series that we do. Uh, next week, we're doing a short three-week series on how to predict the future and how to make better decisions so that even as we go into our summer, that we can experience a summer filled with better decisions and fewer regrets to set us up for the fall um, and then in July, we do this annual series, super excited about, we've already started working on, called At the Movies, where we essentially transform this room into a movie theater. We take um, blockbuster movies in the midst of uh, movie clips and narratives and the storylines of those movies, interweave a different kind of, kind of the powerful truth that oftentimes is underneath the surface of movies that move us. And, um, and so that July series is just always a fun one. It's different. Um, and then August, we're going to dive in, and, uh, as we do every August, and study specific biblical character because there are some incredible men and women throughout uh, the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that have lives that have done things, experienced things that are worth learning from. Sometimes they're what not to do, which is a lesson within itself, and sometimes they're lessons of what to do. And so I'm excited about the summer, but before we kick off the next week, I wanted to speak to you as a family. I want to talk to you a little bit about our future and encounter church. And so today will be different. Okay, so if you don't like today, come back next Sunday. It will be nothing like it. All right. If you love today, I'm available to talk and have coffee with you and be as nerdy as you want me to be in life and everything. Okay. So um, with that said, with that backdrop, I want to kind of launch what this morning is called inconceivable. And to get there, I want us to travel just a little bit in time. If you like history, then um, you're going to be intrigued by where we're going. If you don't like history, it's three minutes. So hold on. So we're getting there. Okay. <laughs> so, um, to kickstart, I want to take you to the year 165 AD. Um, it's in the Roman Empire. Marcus Aurelius is the, imp- is the emperor. He's just led an incredibly successful conquest of Mesopotamia. He's traveling back to Rome along with his other armies. And what's going on in the midst of his army is that a few of his soldiers have gotten sick. It's a strange sickness. They've never seen it before. There's the kind of typical sickness pieces that you expect, a fever and the strange cough and, you know, some some processes that you lose control of. But there's this other thing that's starting to happen that they can't quite figure out. In fact, the most famous medical doctor in the time, 
arguably one of the most famous medical doctors in ancient history, uh, a medical doctor known as Galen, he begins to kind of take notes on what he's seeing happening to these people. Uh, what he sees is something that, quite honestly, if you Google it, you can't unsee it. It's that just crazy disgusting. People's bodies begin to crust over, and um, these, let's just say it gets nasty real fast. How about that? Um, it's a little disturbing, and what he's actually witnessing and what he's describing will, will be known to later kind of medical doctors as a, a rare form of smallpox. It's the most deadly form of smallpox, one that doesn't happen a lot, but still present in, in kind of rare moments in human history. But at this time, it comes out of nowhere, and no one's suspecting it. And as the Roman soldiers travel back into Rome, the outbreak continues to spread. And it gets to the point at the height of this epidemic, 2,000 people will die every single day in Rome alone. It will continue to spread throughout the Roman Empire. It will go from Britain, which was the far edge of the Roman Empire at the time, all the way into Asia. Animals will pass away because of it. And it's estimated that a third to half of the Roman Empire's population passed away in a very short time period. What historians have said about that moment with at least 5 million people who passed away from the first wave alone of the epidemic was it was the beginning of the end of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, the greatest empire in human history in, in depth, breadth of time and scale, begins to collapse slowly, inwardly, because of this plague that takes over the empire. It's this extraordinary moment, and the Romans didn't notice it at the time, quite honestly. In fact, they didn't realize that it will take almost 1,300 years for humans to match the population that existed prior to the outbreak. It will be 1,400 A.D. before humanity as a species will have the population size that it had prior to this outbreak and epidemic. It's extraordinary. It's devastation. And while historians look back on that moment, what they notice is the beginning of the end of the Roman Empire. That's not what the Romans noticed. And it's what the Romans noticed that I want to spend time talking about this morning. A piece that's probably lost for most of us in history. I imagine that 99.9% .9 of us walking in this room or listening online had never even heard of the plague of Galen. Or even maybe Marcus Aurelius. But this moment has a lot to teach us. This moment has a silver lining, and it was what the Romans noticed. But to understand what the Romans in the midst of this plague noticed, I need to take you back a little bit further in time, about 130 years to be exact, almost to this very exact day, 1986 years ago, on June 9th of all days. It's kind of bizarre that way. Um, it's happening on a hillside thousands of miles from where this plague breaks out. There is this controversial figure. He's standing on a hillside, and he's teaching. He's a radical, in fact. His teaching will ultimately lead to him being crucified, which was the Romans' favorite way of sending a message. And it's that message that day that ultimately sets the stage for them to kill him. What he shares that day, what he unpacks that day for the group that's gathered, changes the world. But no one, no one has any idea at the time what's really at stake. The 
while thousands of people are there, there are four people who in proximity or connected to people who are present that day, write down the words that are said. And it's one of those guys specifically that I want to focus in on this morning. His name is Matthew. Matthew was one of the thousands present that day when Jesus, this radical rabbi, stands on the hillside and begins to teach. Matthew's listening, and there's a couple things you need to know about Matthew that's really helpful. Matthew is a rabbi. I mean, he's not a rabbi. He, he's, a, he's a tax collector. He's an accountant. He's really good with details. And he has an experience with Jesus. He's very successful. I mean, he has this experience with Jesus that so transforms his life that this radical rabbi is so compelling to Matthew that Matthew walks away from his career. And I just imagine, even if you're here and you're not even sure about this Jesus thing, what kind of person would you have to meet that would make you walk away from your job? What kind of individual would it have to be to make you walk away from your life? That's who Jesus was when Matthew meets him. And so Matthew turns, begins to follow Jesus. His attention to detail, his accounting abilities show up in the letter that he later writes, the, the biography that we, know, that we know as the Gospel of Matthew. In that biography, there's attention to detail that shows up in a way that's really insightful for us as readers. You see, Matthew was also Jewish. And because Matthew was Jewish, he saw things through the Jewish lens that some of the other biographers did not catch when they wrote about Jesus. And it's this kind of intersection of Matthew's attention to detail and Matthew's very distinctly Jewish perspective that brings this passage that we're going to look at this morning into a better light. You see, Matthew records for us one of the most iconic moments in Jesus's ministry. It's the moment that we call the Sermon on the Mount. But the Sermon on the Mount, while it is the most studied, documented, uh, kind of academically explored speech ever made, the idea that we call it on the Sermon on the Mount can cause us to miss what's really happening that day. Because it's not just some sermon on the Mount. It's not just some message that got moved to the top of a mountainside that made it special. It was the details of that message that made it stand out. You see, Matthew writes for us at the very beginning. Matthew uses an introductory statement for what we call the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5 to 7. He uses an introductory phrase that for any Jewish man or woman would have been instantly recognizable. He goes back to another story in Jewish history, one of the most famous moments in Jewish history, in fact, when Moses is on a mountain and God begins to speak to the people gathered that day. They've just come out of Egypt, these Jewish slaves that have been supernaturally rescued. They stand on the mountainside and God begins to give them the Ten Commandments and all the details of what life is going to look like for these new people. And the same phrase that introduces that moment, Matthew pulls that phrase out of history and uses it to set the introduction for Jesus on his mountain. He's trying to make a point. He says, look, what, what's happening right here, what I saw that day was God stepping into earth. Moses, that moment, Mount Sinai, it's the new Mount Sinai because God is speaking, describing for the people what the new people of God were going to look like. It's a big moment. Matthew's trying to set the stage for that. And while Jesus gathers people together. What we know is Matthew makes this one other distinction about that moment that's helpful. He says that he gathers the, these core followers to himself. You see, there are actually two different groups that day that were present. There was the core, these 
small group of men and women who were the disciples, these followers of Jesus. And then there was the crowd. And the Sermon on the Mount is really a message delivered to the core, to those people who had gathered. But Jesus' message is so interesting and fascinating that a crowd has shown up. Their crowd is leaning in and listening, even though they don't necessarily believe Jesus is anything unique or special. So you've got a core of people listening in and leaning in, and you've got a group, a crowd, that's just there to hear what's happening. And the core is the focus of what Jesus does in this message. And he starts after he's given his introduction with these words. He says, you are the salt of the earth. This is why he says you are. He's not looking to the crowd. He's looking to the core. He says, you are, you guys, gals, you are the salt of the earth, which is kind of an interesting thing, right? I mean, I doubt some, sometime this week you've called someone salt. Maybe perhaps in the English vocabulary, we use salty, right? And that's not necessarily a compliment to call someone salty. And so Jesus is saying, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Now, and I I get there's some chemistry people in the room like me who are like, well, technically salt is sodium chloride. Sodium chloride is very stable compound. It does not degrade, break down or, you know, like salt does not. It's not possible for salt to lose its saltiness. Sodium chloride is a really strong bond. It doesn't break down. Right. And what Jesus is referencing is not arguing with chemistry. What he's doing is he's pointing out a, a a pretty commonly known fact of the time. You see, salt was not produced the way it is today with our little tiny containers and the little kid's underwear being pulled down or the little girl with the uh, umbrella above her head, right? Like, we, that's not the type of salt. They would use salt from the Dead Sea. And the salt from the Dead Sea was sodium chloride, but there was also some gypsum in it. There were some other compounds. And oftentimes, what was called salt in its day was not salt. It was a bunch of things mixed together. And it was really easy for the sodium chloride in the compound that they would use as salt to leak out and to to kind of break away. And so you would be holding something that looked like salt when in reality all the sodium chloride, what we actually call salt, was gone. And this is what Jesus is referencing. This was a frustrating part of life. Sometimes your salt lost its saltiness and you would throw it out. It was useless at that point. But salt is a really important thing in life. Salt was such an important piece and part of life. It was used from preserving meat because there was no refrigeration at the time. And so any meat had to be salted to to be preserved. Uh, Salt was also a seasoning agent like we use it today. Um, Salt was also used for fertilizing fields. So salt was pretty essential. In fact, salt was so important in the ancient Near East that it was sometimes used as, as money. So if you, were, you didn't have your Visa or your MasterCard, but you had a little bucket of salt, you could use that salt to purchase items with. Salt was that essential and common in everyday life. And then he says, but you are the light of the world. So he shifts gears. He says, you're the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on the stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. So he shifts gears from salt to saying, you, the core, you're also the light of the world. And he uses this imagery of the city on a hill, which is an interesting notion. Again, because we're modern readers, we can miss what Jesus is saying. 
Uh, there was this kind of famous satellite image of North Korea that NASA took. And that in the satellite image, you've got South Korea, which is lit up like a Christmas tree to the south. You've got China right above it. And what you notice is there's this kind of dark spot in the middle. And that's actually North Korea at night because of some of the regime issues, because of the lack of electricity and that a large portion of North Korean population is in destitution and has no access to these type of resources at night. This is North Korea, and its snapshot is a better picture of the ancient world. For night to happen, light was not present. For us, we live in a world where when night happens, light's everywhere. And we don't see the difference as stark as they did. And yet North Korea, I think, is a really good picture of that. At nighttime, nothing was lit up. The only thing that was, existed for light was little tiny candles and torches, which didn't do much. But there was this uniqueness, right? And you can actually even see some of the subtlety in the picture, even today in the modern world. When a city or a large group of people came together, that light would kind of grow in its brightness. And so because of the hills of Israel, a city that was on top of a hill with all the little lanterns bright at night would be visible for miles and miles away. So the Blue Hills, which is that kind of fancy hill that we all see almost every single day if you drive anywhere around here, actually is visible for 90 miles on a clear day, which is incredible. You've probably never thought about it. If you could get a drone or you have a vantage point from 90 miles on a clear day, you can see the Blue Hills. Now, if this area was North Korea and you put a little tiny city up on top of the Blue Hills, what you would see is 90 miles away, you would be able to see its light. And this was the ancient Near Eastern world. A city on a hill could be seen for almost 100 miles. And Jesus' point, as he's saying all of this, he's painting these two different visual pictures for what these new people were meant to look like. And he, he makes this point at the end. He's, he says in the last verse after he said salt and light. So let me make it a little bit more practical. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now he's pivoting. He's like, look, I've been speaking with metaphor, but let me make this real. The light and the salt that we talk about is the way you live your life and the good deeds. It's what people should notice when they notice you. Because at some point, he says to them, they will notice you. And when they notice you as my new people, what will they notice about you? What will they see in you? Salt and light was a necessity, was essential. It transformed every situation it was present in. And this is what made Jesus' teaching so fascinating for people because people hadn't experienced this. And uh, a few weeks ago in uh, Coral Springs, Florida, a 52-year-old man goes to the bathroom early Sunday morning, and when he goes into the restroom and lifts up the toilet seat, a four-foot snake leaps out and bites him, And um, which has... After reading that story, my counselor said, in two more weeks, I should be able to go to the restroom again. So I'm almost there. But this guy was not expecting on an on a early Sunday morning with kind of staggering into the restroom with that compelling urge to go, like all 52-year-old men 
already know, right? He, he goes in and what he finds is a four foot snake that had crawled through the piping and was sitting in his toilet waiting on him. Was not expecting that. And this is the religious environment of its day. People had intuitively sensed that this message that God had had for them of these people of hope, it should be life-changing. But every time they walked into a religious context, they found the proverbial snake in the toilet. Because what happened was that they were abused, they were used, they were lashed out at, they were turned into pawns for the religious people's own power and prosperity. That was the religious notion of the day. We forget how radical what Jesus here is saying, because for most people listening in that day, they hated the religious structure of the day the way some of you have hated church because of what had been done to them in the name of religion and the way that religion had been used to abuse them and control them. It's that whole idea. Yesterday, I experienced a little bit of what I think some of us associate with religion. I was driving down the road, and I looked in the rearview mirror, and there was a cop behind me. I don't know if you do this, but this is what happens when I notice a cop behind me. All of a sudden, everything I ever read in the training guide comes flooding back to my hands. My, I sit up straight. My arms lock into the two and the ten, right? I am signaling my lamp like I left and right, like 75 feet in advance, just in case that's not clear. My arm's going out in case my blinker is out. I want to make sure you know this is where I'm going. Because when I see a cop behind me, I am hyperventilating. I'm checking my gauges. I'm paying attention to things. I'm not driving five above, which I confess sometimes I do. I'm now driving five below what I'm supposed to be doing. Because I look behind me and I see a cop. And in my head, I think they're, they're waiting to catch me doing something wrong so they can punish me. Now, we have some amazing people who are part of this church who are law enforcement, and you show me every day that that's not true. But just being real, when I see a cop behind me, me and my 2003 Buick LeSabre, we start obeying the laws real fast. <laughs> and for many people in the religious experience, that's the way they view church, and that's how they viewed the world back then, too. The religious organization was just waiting to catch me doing something wrong so they could punish me. They wanted to slap my wrist. They wanted to stick it to me. And what happened was as a result of that mindset, people began to see religion as something that was meant to be used and compelled and manipulated through guilt. And then Jesus comes and he teaches and speaks and preaches a whole different picture of what people are expecting. Jesus is trying to make the point that what it is to... To be the mark of the way his people live is that they are to be noticeably in their noticing good, kind, loving, gentle, and generous, and serving. That what should mark them should be the good deeds in such a way that people are so overwhelmed by it that they notice there must or begin to wonder if there's more to life than what they have. The religious people had become fireworks. Fireworks are bright, they sparkle, and they attract attention to themselves. And Jesus is saying, you're a spotlight. The way you love, the way you live is meant to point to something bigger and greater. And so as people see your life, they start to wonder, maybe there is a God. That people who have written off religion, people who have written off God would start to wonder maybe there is more because I've never seen anything like that before. I mean, that's my story. 
I used to pick on Christians. I used to laugh at them in my little biochem world with all my little other majors in college. We would laugh at the religious people because they were anti-intellectual and they were kind of weird with their rules of life. And I had enough of them in my life that were mainly hypocrites that it made it even easier for me to pick on them because they would do things on Sundays that were completely in contrast to the way they lived their life Monday through Saturday. And I was like, I don't want any of what they have. And yet what happened in my life was that I began to bump up against people who looked and lived differently. Their kindness, their gentleness, their compassion, the way they would listen, the way they care for others made me want to lean in and learn more about this faith that they had that was so radically different than others. These were people who leveraged their life for the good of others around them and didn't expect or want to be noticed for what they did. They just did it because they were different. And it made me so curious that I was willing to walk into places like this even after I had ridiculed most of the people sitting in places like this. I would sit through, just to be real with you, I hated the music that I walked into that day. I was like, what in the world? This is like bad rock music, okay? It's like not even good rock music. Fortunately for us, we have, we're like good rock music. But that, that place I walked in that day was bad rock music. Like I wanted to not like anything about it. But what made it so attractive to me were how different the people were. Which is, I believe, exactly what Jesus was saying this day when he says, you're the salt and the light of the earth, that people should see your good deeds. People should see the way you live, and they should be drawn to it. In fact, Jesus, the night before, the night he's arrested, he's got 24 hours left, and he says it even more succinctly in John 13, 34, and 35. He says, look, I'm leaving, but a new command I give to you, love one another. That as I have loved you, so you must love one another. In fact, he goes on, by this, everyone will know you are my disciples by the way you love one another. He says, look, when people notice you, what they should notice about you is the way you love. That should be the mark of who you are as my people. That should be what stands out about you. That love, not in our culture, which is a noun, which is an emotion, it's fluffy, it it writes these songs that says, I will never leave you, and yet then in the next song, I've left you and I found someone better than you. I mean, that is the love songs that we sing. I'm in love with the shape of your body until your body changed, and now I have a new body that I'm in love with the shape with. It's this emotionally feel-good kind of orientedness, and Jesus is like, no. I am your standard for definition. As I have loved, so you will love. He says love is not a noun. Love is a verb. It is not an emotion. It is something that is put into motion out of its care and concern for others. He was like, that is to be the mark. Which brings me back to the plague of Galen. That what historians notice is not what the Romans noticed. You see... It's called the plague of Galen, but the irony is, is that Galen's writings on the plague was notoriously incomplete. If it wasn't for other historical accounts of that plague, we would not be confident it was smallpox. The reason why is because Galen, the most famous Roman physician and arguably the most famous ancient physician in history, noticed the outbreak happening and fled Rome to the countryside so he wouldn't have to be around anyone sick. 
Imagine walking into your doctor's office and you're like, man, I got this thing or ma'am, I, this is going on. And they're like, hold up. Mm-mm. No, 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 no. You go back out there in the lobby room and then you see them squill out the parking lot in the car because they're trying to get away from you because you're contagious. Like none of us would think that's a good doctor. And yet that's what Gallen does. He flees Rome because he doesn't want to catch what they have. And when Gallen flees Rome, what the Romans notice is a group of people that they called the Galileans. Now, the Galileans was kind of a derogatory term. The Galileans were the name of people that followed this Galilean rabbi that they called Jesus. See, when Galen, the Roman physician, left, the Galileans were running to the people who were sick. The Galileans loved, they served, babies that were left for dead on Doorsteps were picked up by Christians who would wander around at night looking for babies who had been abandoned. They would take those babies home and they would make their babies their own. It was lawful in the ancient Roman culture to leave your sick or unsick baby at the doorstep because you didn't want it anymore. That was the law. And what they noticed was these Galileans would come around at night and they would pick them up. And they would save and they would nurse them back to strength. And that there's all these accounts of these Galileans who would come in and people dying of smallpox, they would be nursed back to health and they would live. Because even in modern medicine, a 30%, you have a 30% chance of surviving a lot of things if you just have the basic necessities. Because what often would kill people in the throes of deadly sicknesses were the fact that they had no strength to drink water or to eat anymore. And so just the presence of someone willing to help feed you, to help give you water, to help give you life would actually help people survive. And when the Galileans passed away, because some of them died taking care of these people with smallpox, the funerals of these, because we have historical records, the the funeral sermons were celebrations. They would celebrate the people who had just passed away because of the way they had loved and served and nursed those people who were sick. And if the person lived, but the, the Christian died, they would rejoice even more. They would say, oh, look, because their idea of the time was that you could take the sickness away from someone. So they believed that you could go in and take someone's sickness. And when a Christian died in the middle of this plague, they would celebrate it as a martyr, as someone who had demonstrated the type of love that Jesus had demonstrated for them. And the Roman Empire, while retrospectively historians notice it was the beginning of the collapse, what the Romans noticed for the first time was the Galileans. Christianity has a turning point in the ancient Near East because of this moment. And within 200 years of this moment, it's the official state religion, not because a government stepped in and forced everyone to convert, but because this early group of people who had been called up with Jesus in this picture of love and service had been so enamored and had been so like just grabbed hold of the way Jesus had demonstrated love that they went out and started doing it. They loved the people who didn't love them. They treated their enemies with hope. They, the Christians did things that today we would look back and say, oh, that's just normal. But the Christians put slaves on the same level as masters which was radical at the time. They would treat women and children not as property but as people because in the ancient Roman and Middle Eastern world, women and children were just pieces of property. And yet Christian theology 
saw them as people. And the way they treated people put them on an equal playing field in such a way that people started to notice how they treat people. Because a lot of the things that we take for granted in our modern world as the way world should operate was not the way they saw the world back then. The reason you and I take it for granted is because this group of people that should have never been successful and should have never been able to carry this radical rabbi's teaching to the ends of the earth were actually successful. And it has shaped the way we see the world 2,000 years later. Because a group of people believe that love does. And that love can be the most powerful, transforming. And even if all the world saw it as inconceivable, they had seen Christ crucified, come back to life, and had fully bought in that that was the only way to life. And they lived that way. And while we're thousands of years disconnected from this moment almost, I believe that we're the next step in the continuation of this moment because we still follow and adhere to the teaching that that radical rabbi taught that day on the mountain. At Encounter Church, one of the things that you'll probably start to notice around here in the next six months as we begin to update our website and our app is our new logo. And our new logo is really simple, but at the core of our logo to capture this idea is a heart. Because at the core of Christianity is love. At the core of our faith is His love. Now, it's not not a heart kind of traditionally upright. This is a heart that's oriented, that's pushing out, that's moving forward. Because we believe love is a verb. It is not an emotion. It does not determine, do I like this person? Does this person look like me? Does this person live the way I live? It says, no, love does. Love is a verb that it's defined the way Jesus defined it for us. And that is to be the mark of us as a people. And as we dream over the next few years and what I believe God is going to do here and what some of you have stepped into, I believe that the church is meant to be that radical force of love, that we are meant to be continually that demonstration of how God has lived. It's why sometimes people walk up to us and say, you must be a rich church. And I'm like, what do you mean by that? Well, the way you do so much in the community and the way you have these events and the way you give to people and you give to local organizations and you volunteer your time, only... Only a church with a lot of money would do all that stuff. And I'm like, I think you've missed it a little bit. We are rich, but we're not rich in that way. We're rich in good deeds. You know, we're not a club. We don't see the money that comes in or the people that walk in our doors. They don't exist for us. We exist for them. We use and leverage the resources we have to be a force for good because we believe love does. We're rich, but it's not rich the way you think. We're rich in good deeds because Jesus demonstrated for us that's what love does. And the reason that we've been able to give over $100,000 away to our community throughout our existence has been because at the end of the day, we were never about ourselves. This is not some holy club where we walk in and we get our perks and our membership and we got our kids area and we do all that stuff. This is a movement. This is a force. This is a revolution started by a radical rabbi on a hillside 2,000 years away, 2,000 years ago, who did the unimaginable, the unconceivable after crucifixion and he was resurrected and he walked out and he said, what I have said is to be how you live. My words are your way. 
And so we are a little bit radical in that we think that the old is the new and the new is the old. It's still true. And that we should just simply do what he says. Now, that may make us crazy. You may think we're rich. But we just think a church should be known for what it does, not what it takes from. Because there are a lot of people in this community who've lifted up that proverbial lid and been bitten by a snake of religious organizations and religious people. And I think what Jesus says in the midst of all this teaching is really important. He makes this disclaimer twice in this passage. He says, if a salt loses its saltiness and if you hide a light under a, a bowl. The reality is it's a choice. Jesus says, look, you, you have a choice in this thing. You can determine. You can determine to be the salt and light or you can become the salt that loses its saltiness and the light that loses its brightness. You have a choice. And 1,986 years ago, or, and then 1,800 plus years ago, the church in that moment, in their time, chose to be salt and light and love. And they did it in such a way that they won over an entire empire in the way they lived their life. And I believe that we have a choice too. That we have a choice to be a church that creates environments where kids thrive, not survive church experience. Where kids come here and it's safe and they grow and they flourish because they understand that a God that loves them, a God that died for them, has a purpose and a plan for them. And that he, he is for them. And not to be damaged or destroyed by people who use their power for manipulation and abuse. And that the church should be a force that transforms the community. That a community should weep if a church ceased to be there. Because of the good that it does in that community. That it should be a place where if you walk into these doors and your marriage is falling apart, that we can promise to you this is a place where your marriage can become restored. This is where your life can be saved. This is where your life can be transformed. This is the most hopeful part of your week because we believe hope has a name and his name is Jesus. And that radical rabbi released us on a mission and a revolution to be that force for good. And I want to encourage you, not to the crowd listening on the edges today, but I want to challenge you for the core sitting in this room to lean into that love, to be that love to demonstrate and to do that love in every single day and that what should mark our lives should be the kindness and the goodness and the compassion that our words should linger in the rooms that we walk out of building empowering engaging people the church should be the place where people flourish not falter and fail it should be a place where people are welcomed in regardless of who they are and where they've come from. Because we believe intrinsically in the hope of what we believe in our gospel, that the best is still yet to come for anyone willing to turn to him. That he's still the God of miracles. That he's still the God who is able to do in their lives things that they've never imagined. And that he can do it again. And that for some of us that are sitting in this room, You've been through this storyline. You've seen us transition in this space. And there's a special thing that's happened over the last few weeks I want to share with you in our final moments together. So this space, you're sitting in a room in a building. It's about $1.5 million to do all of this. 
This is when you walk in the door, you notice this place looks a little different. Why? Because we believe a lot of people have been struck by that snake, and we wanted people to walk into these doors and instantly see church as something different. You walk into our lobby, and it looks like an art gallery. People have said when they make deliveries, is this an art gallery? And we're like, sort of, because we believe there's a God who made you, and you're a masterpiece. And we believe that when people stand out in our lobby that it is a living art gallery of God's handiwork and masterpieces. And maybe some people don't walk into this space feeling like they're a masterpiece. Maybe some people walk into this space feeling like their mistakes or like they're broken or that their choices prior to that moment have so wrecked their life that there's nothing wonderful about their lives. But we believe just that space points to the fact that you are a masterpiece and in the hands of the creator your art is not yet complete and it's even more wonderful than what you believe it could be so there's a lot of intentionality in this space and it was 1.5 million dollars and we owe about three hundred and fifty thousand dollars. jason could give me really exact numbers but it's roughly that that amount and what was amazing is that we've recently been approached people a small group of donors who believe in Encounter Church and what we're doing and what you're doing here and what people who are serving right now so that you're in this room are doing is so compelling that they want to be a part of it. They said, look, we recognize that you owe about $350,000 and that that limits you and what you can do. Because if that $350,000 wasn't there, I wouldn't make any more money. I'd still drive my 2003 Buick LeSabre, and I'd still drive like I got sense when cops are behind me, and like I don't have sense when they're not, okay? Like, it wouldn't change my salary. It wouldn't change my life. But what it would release, what they understand is it would release us as a church to be even greater in our contribution to our community, even greater in the environments that we create to bring hope and life to people. And they're like, so here's the deal. For every dollar you pay towards that debt, we will match it with two additional dollars. So that means $10 becomes $30. $1,000 becomes $3,000. $10,000 becomes $30,000. We can keep doing the math. $100 plus thousand gets us really close to our debt being completely washed away. And, and it practically, with August and the payment, it, it averages out to about 50000 a year that we have to make in loan payments. And it could be gone. Now, to add pressure to us, which I, I'm not exactly appreciative of, but it is what it is, um, they said you got to the end of the summer to do this, which is like great news at the worst timing ever. Because let me tell you a little bit about the church world. Okay, Um, people go on vacation during summer. People disappear during summer. Church budgets and financial income looks like a really terrifying roller coaster in the summer because it goes whoosh because people aren't here. But yet all the things that are here are still here. Goldfish still happens. We're still planning for September, October, and November curriculum. We're still making purchases. All that reality is still there. And so we were like, oh, my goodness. Because without any excess financially as a church, we can't access this opportunity. And so for those who say, I appreciate Encounter Church, I want you to participate in what I'm about to roll out to you. In the next 90 days, 
we need to see a miracle. And for that miracle to happen means we need excess financials in order to access the potential. And so we are going to roll out today what I'm going to call a 90-day giving challenge because it is a challenge and it's a struggle. I'm going to ask you to do one of three things. I'm going to ask you to step in. If you've been, if you appreciate this church, even if you don't believe what this church believes or buy into what this church buys into, that's okay. But for the next 90 days, I want you to step in to giving to this church because every dollar you give to this church moves us closer to being able to pay off that debt. And when we pay off that debt, we can do more in our community. For some of you, I'm going to ask you to set up, set up automated giving because when you're not here, you don't give. And by you not being here, it means that we are even in a tighter financial position and we're less positioned to take advantage. And so we want to ask you to set up automated giving. Whatever you're giving, we have an app that will help you in just a few quick clicks to automate it through the summer over the next 90 days. And finally, for those who are here who are so sacrificial in the way that you give, who are like many of you who literally set aside over 10%, like our family does and like a lot of other families, set aside over 10% of your salary to give. I'm going to ask you to do what our family is going to do, to step up in the next 90 days to make a sacrificial gift and to give to this church, knowing that by giving to this church over the next 90 days, you will start to create excess that will allow us to access what we have put in front of us. Because I do believe that there are some incredible moments waiting that can come out of this. And if $125,000 sounds like a big number, which I get it is, I mean, realistically, if everybody in this room gave $1,000, we'd be, we'd be set. Some of you, you can't give $1,000. $50 may be a stretch for you. For some of you, let's just be real, you can give $10,000 and it wouldn't hurt you. We have a full spectrum in this church. So I don't know what stepping in, setting up, or stepping up looks like for you. But I do know that Jason and I have had some private conversations already, and we already have over $30,000 committed to this project and this 90-day challenge. Okay? Yes. And so those people are proverbially looking at us and say, we've started it. Can you finish it? And at the end of this 90 days, I would like to stand before you and say, here is what God has done. Here is what you as a church have unleashed. And hear me, if you're sitting in this room and you're part of that crowd, you're not part of the core, it's okay. You just got to see a little bit of how we work this morning. And I hope that what you heard inspired you. I hope what you heard awakened something inside of you to say, you know what, there should be more groups like this. Because we believe that there is a force of love waiting to be awakened. And if you want to participate, here's the two ways, and we'll, we'll follow up with you. But in the app, there's a little house icon. That little house icon, um, if you click on it, it says, I'm committing to stepping in, setting up, or stepping up. You just put your information, you click which one you want to do, and we'll follow up with you. If you want to set up automated giving, we'll, we'll respond to you and tell you how to do that. If you want to step up or step in, we'll respond to you and say, what are you willing to commit to? Because for us, we can go back to those private donors and say, here's what we've had committed. 
so that they know we're working to work down that debt. And so whatever that choice is, for some of you, you may be able to do it today. Some of you, you may need to have a conversation with your household. But I'm going to ask you to boldly lean in. Because, see, Jesus says something in this passage that's really interesting. It's the first time in the book of Matthew, the first time really in modern and kind of like Jewish theology, that God is openly called your heavenly father, your heavenly father. And the challenge, while some of you may be thinking, man, I, if I could, I would. Like, man, I love this church, and if I could, I would. I, wanna, I just want to encourage you, you're not partnering with me. You're partnering with God. And what I've found in my own storyline time and time again is in the kingdom economy, it's flipped upside down. If you would, you could. I have found that I've never been able to outgive God. I have never sacrificed and generously gave in one area where God not, does not meet my needs in the other areas. And that if you would, you could. And that for those who are sitting on the edges this morning who are maybe walking through struggle and trial, Jesus' words of your heavenly Father speaks to you today where you are and that there is a God who loves you, who died for you, who pursued you even when you weren't interested in Him and that no situation or circumstance that you find yourself in is beyond His control or grasp, that He is the God of the resurrection and the God of the resurrection is able to do immeasurably more than what we can ask or imagine. And that to close this out today, the band's going to lead us in a song called Do It Again. And that song is just this declaration of God, step in and do again what you've done before. That in, in the movement of the church throughout history, God, you have shown up when a people say, yes, Lord, and you've done immeasurably more. And so let's, as a people, engage a God who through his love demonstrated and defined how we were meant to love. Let's pray. Thanks again for joining us. Did you know we've created a free app just for you? Whether you are exploring or want to grow in your faith, the app is a great place to start. If you found today's teaching helpful, we hope you'll subscribe or share it with your friends. We look forward to connecting with you on site or online at Encounter Church soon.